our Bibles, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Welcome to week 15 of our Names of God series, and as we enter into the month of December, we are shifting our names of God to reflect the person of Jesus. And so this morning, we start with the name or description of Jesus as the Word. Next week, we'll see him as Emmanuel. The following week, we will see him as the bright and morning star. On Christmas Eve, we will see him as Jesus or Savior. And then the last Sunday of 2023, together, we will see Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. So that's kind of where we're going. But this morning, Jesus is the Word. And it has been said that the average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. Now, some talk more than others, and I'm definitely not going to get into who's who there, so not going to bait me. But suffice to say, at the end of an average lifespan, you could fill 3,000 volumes or 1.5 million pages with all the words that we speak. So words are plentiful in our lives, and yet words are also vital. Yet the question becomes, what is the most vital word? I would think it would be difficult in many different ways for us to identify the most important word in our language, but the Apostle John did not find it difficult at all. As he begins his gospel, he begins with the identification of Jesus as the word. Basically what he says is the most important word in my language and every language is the word and name Jesus. He is the foundational word. He is the foundational revelation. Yet the problem is, with what we have done with that revelation, that we haven't all, always treated that revelation the way we should. The story is told of a little boy who wanted a, a bicycle really, really, really bad. And he wasn't quite sure how to pray and ask God for this bicycle, so he figured he would follow his, his parents' prayer methods. So one night before bed, he got down on his knees and he said, Lord, if it be Thy will, if thy would give your humble servant a humble bicycle, in Jesus' name, amen. And he felt really good. He went to bed, and yet two days later, still no bike. So he happened to be walking through the living room, and he heard a prosperity preacher on the television praying. So he decided, well, I'm going to try it that way. So that night, he got down on his knees in front of his bed, and he said, Father, in Jesus' name, I command you, I claim a blue bike that sparkles for all to see in Jesus' name. And, of course, he went to bed. Two days later, still no bike. A little sad, and that's when he overheard his dad watching The Godfather. So that night before bed, the little boy grabbed the statue of Mary from the nativity set. He got down on his knees and he said, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> Needless to say, this boy had some very misinformed views of Jesus. But let me break some bad news to us. So do many within the church. In fact, last year, Ligonier Ministries conducted their annual theological survey of professing Christians. So you can look at it online. Ligonier Ministries Theological Survey. They do it every year of professing believers. They question professing believers on what they believe. And the results of, of these surveys every year are shocking and not just shocking, they're disturbing. 
Because these are what professing believers are claiming they believe. Let me just give you a few. 43% of professing believers believe that Jesus sinned. So basically, 43% of people are saying that they can't be saved because they believe that Jesus sinned. Therefore, he can never be the sacrifice for their sin. 70% believe that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Even though the Bible is very clear, there are none righteous. No, not one. 66% of professing believers believe that God accepts the worship of all sincere religions and all sincere beliefs. 66%. But one statistic in particular was not just alarming, but it relates to where we are today in the Gospel of John. And that is 55% of professing believers believed that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. They believe that Jesus was a created being. That he wasn't, and then he was. And that is simply staggering. Let that sink in for a moment. Over a half people who profess to be believers believe that Jesus was created just like us. How disturbing that is, especially in light of this thing called the Bible. And as you probably know, the answers given when it comes to who Jesus is vary greatly. All you need to do in order to think about how people perceive Jesus is answer your door when your doorbell rings. And there are oftentimes, I suspect all of us at one time or another had someone knock on the door. We opened the door and they wanted to tell us their beliefs concerning Jesus. So think about those clean-cut young men and their white shirts and their black ties. They used to ride bikes. Now they ride electric vehicles. I guess that's the same. But they will tell you that Jesus was the firstborn child of Elohim, the product of a physical union between Father God and Virgin Mary. So they believe that for a time, God and Mary were husband and wife, and that they had a sexual relationship, and Jesus came of that. For Mormons, Jesus is not the eternally pre-existent second person of the Trinity. Now, if they don't knock on your door, then chances are a Jehovah Witness will likely show up at your door. And if you were to ask a Jehovah Witness what they believe about Jesus, if they were honest, they would say something along these lines. Before Jesus came to this earth, Jesus was Michael, the archangel. He's only a creature, the first product of Jehovah God's creative work. When he was born of the... Virgin Mary, excuse me, he was stripped of his spiritual, angelic nature and became holy and exclusively a man. They would say Jesus isn't God. Now, it's doubtful that a Muslim would ever knock on your door, but if you would ever engage one in conversation, he or she will tell you this concerning Jesus, that Jesus was just like Abraham, was just like Moses, was just like Isaiah, and that Jesus was just a prophet, but he wasn't God. They would say Muhammad, who lived 500 years after Jesus, was God's greatest prophet. And then they would say this, besides, Jesus didn't die on the cross the way you say he did. That God spared him, and instead, either Judas or Simon of Cyrene died in Jesus' place. And therefore, because of that, there is no death on the cross, and there is no atonement for our sins as we claim. The problem is all of these beliefs fall well short of who the Bible says Jesus is and who Jesus himself said that he was. And the first statement that John makes in the Gospel of John, the first statement that John makes is a bomb. 
that just goes off concerning who Jesus is. It's like the reality of Jesus just exploding off the pages of John 1, verse 1. And one of the main marks of the Gospel of John is that John delivers the weightiest doctrines with the simplest words. So what we're about to read today is simply worded, yet it is deep. So we're going to go a little deep this morning, and I just ask you to hang with me, and we're going to get to a lot of things in which we apply these deep truths. But the reality is this, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that Word is Jesus, and that Word is and was God. Let it be known loud and clear, church, that the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, we worship Jesus as God. We worship Jesus as God. We fall down at the feet of Jesus along with the Apostle Thomas, and we say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That is our declaration. So let's dive in this morning and behold the word. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. Now on the screen we have 1 through 5 and then verse 14, and I was not able to get verses 4 and 5 in, so we're just going to do verses 1 through 3. We will fit verses 4 and 5 in when we get to Jesus as the bright and morning star, and then we're going to go from verse 3 to verse 14. So John writes these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we come before you lifting high this morning, Jesus as the Word. Show us today what that means. That Jesus, you are the Word. You are the full, final revelation. You are God. And as the Word, we must hear you. We must respond to you. To speak, O oh God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So on December 11th, 1998, don't know how many of you were there then, but there were, it was a day of anticipation. So on that day, a team from NASA launched the Mars Climate Orbiter. So this climate orbiter was an essential component of a larger initiative to explore Mars. However, on September 23rd, 1999, communication with the craft was lost. So as the Mars Climate Orbiter entered orbit, it approached too close to the surface of Mars, causing it to disintegrate. Now, upon investigation, it was realized, get this, that the team that programmed the craft used the metric system, and the team that built the computer software on the ground operated in the standard system of measurement. So because of a communication breakdown, an inability to calculate together, the project was a complete failure. In fact, it was a $125 million failure. And I know that's just an average day in Capitol Hill, but then that's a lot, $125 million failure. And when interviewed the Associate Administrator for Space Science said this, well, people sometimes just make mistakes. 
Well, some errors, as we know it, are more costly than others. And please hear this today. The worst error that can ever be made is a miscalculation concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. The greatest error that can ever be made is a miscalculation concerning who Jesus is. Yet John is very clear. Jesus is the word. And the word is God. That Greek word for word is the word logos. We use it um, all the time for words such as theology, psychology, biology, geology, so on and so forth. And it can refer to a unit of language or to a discipline of thought. So as the word, Jesus is the mind of God. He is the expression of the thought of God. He is the revelation of God. He is the logos. And, and starting with the beginning of beginnings, so in John 1, 1, John declares that the most vital word, not just in his language, but in every language, is the word Jesus. And let me frame it this way. And please hear this, because what I'm about to say might be shocking to you. God had every right to stay silent. Did you know that God didn't owe it to us to speak? The only thing that God owes to you is hell. That's the only thing that you're owed. Everything you get other than hell is God's grace and mercy. So understand that reality. Everything you get other than hell, you are getting what you don't deserve. So just, just so we know, I know that's not preached much today, but that is the reality of all of our lives. But God had every right to stay silent. God did not owe us a, a single syllable. But God spoke and he revealed himself. He spoke and he spoke all into creation. He spoke and we, mankind, were made in the image of God. He spoke, and Abram left Ur, and the Jewish nation was born. He spoke, and the law was given. He spoke to the prophets, and they said, Thus says the Lord. But God had one more word stored up. And this would be his final speech, and this would be his greatest message ever. So God saved his best word for last, and that word was Jesus. That word was Jesus. And think about this. What is a word made out of? A word is made out of letters. And the book of Revelation said that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the, the first and the last of the Greek alphabet. So the point is this. Jesus is the beginning, he is the end, and he is everything in between for us. So the question becomes, why did, why did John call Jesus the word? The only answer I can think of is because John had come to see that the words of Jesus were true. And John had come to see that the life of Jesus pointed to his truth. And the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus were unified together in a way that in Jesus' coming, in his working, in his teaching, in his dying, and in his rising, it is shown that Jesus was the final and decisive message of God to the world. He is the message to us. If you want a message from God, Jesus is that message. Theologian Frederick Bruner put it this way. He says, we long to know who God is and what God thinks and does. In Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thought and heart and deeds that are as profound as his words. And the believing human race has experienced deep help ever since.
So God gave us this word, and this word has brought to us deep help. Deep help for us. So this morning, I want to lay before us. I hope you get a little bit more lively, because I feel like I'm preaching a funeral right now, and it's like a bad funeral. Where like There's no hope for this person here, and I need you guys to liven up a little bit, because I know we're deep here, but the, the picture is this. If you don't believe this and know this, then you are doomed. So let's believe this and know this today. So three truths showing us Jesus as God's most definitive, as God's final, and as God's eternal word. So truth number one, the word is the eternal one. The word is the eternal one. So the gospel of John is not like any other book of the Bible. Matthew and Luke start their gospels in Bethlehem with the birth of Jesus. Mark starts his gospel at the Jordan River with the baptism of Jesus. But John takes us all the way back to the beginning of history. So all other gospels begin in time, and yet John begins in eternity with the first three words, in the beginning. Those words take us all the way back to Genesis 1 with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John takes us back, hear this, before Genesis 1. Because John says, in the beginning was the word, not in the beginning the word began. Think about this. Let your mind stretch back as far as it can. Let your mind stretch back to the conquest of Alexander the Great. Let your mind stretch back to Solomon's temple. Let your mind stretch back to the parting of the Red Sea and Israel being delivered from Egypt. Let your mind be taken back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And here's the reality. At no point, at no time, during no event, can it be said that the word was not there. None. So before all of these events, indeed before the creation of the first molecule in Adam, the word simply was. Everyone and everything that we know has a starting point, but not Jesus. So when the starting point of history began, Jesus was there. And he wasn't just there, he was calling the shots. And you might be thinking right now, well, I don't understand all of that. Well, good, get in line, I don't either. But I believe it. And I believe it because God's word says it. So let's continue. In the beginning, it says, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What a strange way to begin the story. In the beginning, the word already existed. But this is statement is so true because the word is Jesus. Jesus is our eternal God. That's the point of the opening line of, of John. John is saying, Jesus, you know him, you've heard about him, he's God. Before anything else existed, Jesus existed. He is not a created being, but rather he is our creator God. He was with God in eternity past. He was God. And that, that line, that very beginning line, it's about as clear as the Bible could possibly be in saying that Jesus was and is God. Pretty much this. If Jesus were at your company picnic, his name tag would say God. Pretty simple. That's kind of how it is. And, and yet God is not a God of coincidence and God is not a God of chaos. And Jesus isn't a coincidence. He's not. So John's words show up that Jesus was with God in the beginning and that he is God, it's the picture that's showing us who Jesus is so we can be clear and understand. In fact, it's been said this, a savior, not quite God, is a bridge broken at the furthest end. 
A Savior who isn't God can't get us all the way to God. And yet Jesus, he's our Savior and he is God. All of this is highlighted in Colossians 1, 17, where it says this. Paul writes, and he is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. All things hold together. All things hang together so that without Jesus, everything would come apart. Jesus is the glue of the galaxies. He's the glue of your life and my life. In fact, think about this. If you take Christ away from your life, your life will eventually unravel. If you take Christ away from your home, your home will eventually come apart. And if you take Christ away from your kids, your kids will eventually be held by other things that can't hold them together. Don't, don't miss what we're saying here. If, if you take Christ away, everything falls Apart. All things were made by him, and it's only through him that everything holds together. He is the eternal one. Do you feel him in this moment holding your life together? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? It's a reality that's true today, and it will be true forever. The word is the eternal one, but then secondly, the word is the creating one. He's the creating one. So you think about the beginning of Jesus. And so when we think about the beginning of Jesus, we think that there needs to be a star and a manger and cattle are lowing and baby Jesus wakes up. Um, Angels are singing. Wise men are coming. And we think of all of those things. But in the sweeping introduction to John, John doesn't tell us Jesus' story. He tells us ours. Look at verse 3. It says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Stop for a second. There are religions that will tell you that Jesus was the first created thing, that God created Jesus. But what does John say? Everything has been created by Jesus. And it says this, and without Jesus, not anything was made that was made, meaning Jesus didn't make himself. He made everything. He's always been. So Jesus is the initiator of everything, the universe, our our lives, our salvation. Meaning that not only was Jesus God's agent for salvation, he was God's agent for creation. When we connect John 1 and and Genesis 1, think about who was a part of creation. God the Father was there. God the Holy Spirit was there. And according to John 1, God the Son, Jesus, was there. Each doing their part, this grand design. And God was revealing this picture from the very beginning that Jesus is the source of life. Yes, Jesus would come to this earth, but Jesus would come to this earth still being the one who created it all and still being the one who holds it together by the word of his power. I'm about to say something. I'm going to get very upset for a few minutes. Just follow with me here. One of the biggest hoaxes perpetrated on the human race over the last 175 years is the hoax of evolution. The greatest hoax ever given, perpetrated upon the human race. And let me just say this. Evolution is a religious hoax because it's based on a faulty belief system about the origin of all things. Your view about the origin of creation, your view about life itself becomes a religion because it dictates every decision you make in life. And let me just say this, if you believe that we all came from animals, then you are free to live just like an animal and do whatever animals do in every single way. And here's the reality, people are doing that. 
If you believe that we all came from animals and we have no intrinsic value, then you are free to kill any baby in the womb because those babies aren't humans and they have no value. If, if you believe that we just came by chance, then guess what? Who cares how you live? There isn't a God. It doesn't matter. And here's the reality. Over half of the people in our nation live that way. Living that way. There are no consequences. There is no God. But here's the point. If there is a God who made us, then we are responsible to him. And therefore, it's a whole lot easier to live as if God didn't exist, knowing that even if you live that way, your, your life lived that way will still end up with you in front of God. Think about that reality. You can live your whole life saying, I don't believe there's a God, and there will come a day you will open your eyes and you will behold him. And he in that moment will say to you, I never knew you. But think about the biblical definition. Think about the biblical explanation all throughout the word of God. We are given a very clear picture that there is a God who made everything. Everything owes its existence to him. He's the source of everything. Everything that we see, the stars, the planets, the sun, the galaxies, on our level, trees and mountains and rivers and oceans, flowers and animals and people. Everything was created by God through Jesus. And we think about, again, the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.16. Paul says, for by him all things were created. Hear this. All things were created through him, through Jesus, and for Jesus. We're not just created through Jesus. We were created, our lives were created for him. To be lived for him. To be lived for his glory. Follow with me here. Though, though God is invisible, Jesus is not. Therefore, when we wonder what God is like, Here's what I would tell you. Look to Jesus. If you wonder what God would do in a situation, look to Jesus. When doubts and fears begin to creep into our minds and hearts, anchor yourself here that all things, both in heaven and on earth, have been created by him and are upheld by him. That means the whole world, as crazy as it seems, and there are times where it seems like the world in which we live has lost its ever-loving mind. Yet even in those moments, the world in which we live is still under his control. He still has the whole world in his hands. And we can rest in this truth no matter who's in power in our countries, no matter who's in power in our companies, no who's in power in any organization, Jesus is ultimately in control over everything, over it all. He is above everything, and hear this, Jesus has no rivals. Jesus has no rivals. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So when you, when you find yourself wondering about what God is like, does God even care about what is going on in my life in this moment? All we have to do is look to the life of Jesus. He cares. He knows exactly what he is doing. So I, don't, I don't always know. I don't always know exactly what's going on, but he does. And he is able to work it in our lives for good. So the word is the creating one, which leads us to number three. The word is the revealing one. And now we jump to verse 14 and one of the most amazing scriptures in all the gospel of John, where John connects this picture of Jesus as God with what Jesus would do for us. And it says this, you see on the screen, the word became flesh. The word was wrapped in flesh, Jesus 
God, eternal God, became man, wrapped himself in flesh, and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled or to make his tent among us. And then John says this, We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this verse is the Christmas story. Yet it's not the Christmas story historically that we think about. It's the Christmas story theologically. This is what happened at Christmas. The Word became flesh. And this is the most profound statement in all of history. God became man. Infinity became infinite. The invisible became visible. Eternity now squeezed itself into time. The supernatural confined itself in the natural. Or to say it differently, God in Christ moved into our neighborhood. God in Christ moved into our neighborhood. And this wasn't moving on up. This was moving on down for him to come to dwell with us. Yet Jesus dwelt. He tabernacled. He made his tent among us. And here's a good little nugget for us today. In the Bible, three kinds of people lived in tents. Shepherds, sojourners, and soldiers. But three types of people lived in tents. They lived in tents because they never stayed in one place very long. Yet what John is telling us is that Jesus lived in the tent of his humanity for 33 years because he was a shepherd, he was a sojourner, a traveler, and he was a soldier. He came to be our good shepherd. He also came as a visitor to us from heaven. And according to Hebrews 2.10, he came as the captain of our salvation. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And while he was here, he dwelt among us. And he, according to John, was full of grace and truth. Meaning, as the word who became flesh, please hear this, Jesus, he gets it. He gets us. And I'm not saying that from the standpoint of the commercials you see. I'm saying that from the standpoint of what the word of God says. Stop for a moment and think about your hardest moments. Think about those times in your life where you have felt your fleshness the most. Think about all the uh and the yuck moments of your life, the frustration of being vulnerable, the frustration of being weak, the frustration of just being flesh. And then think about this. Jesus knows. And he doesn't just know hypothetically, not merely omniscience that he knows everything, so he knows that. No, he knows because he has experienced flesh. And that means that the, the hardest moments of our life, when it's, when it's thick with difficulty and when we can't muster a God thought, even if it were to smack us upside the head, when, when that is happening, Jesus knows exactly where we are and he is able to come to us in that moment. And as we saw last week, he is able to walk us through and lead us through whatever thick difficulty and darkness we find ourselves in. I want to ask you to end. Let's look at verse 16 of John 1. And I love what John does here. How John takes us from the word, the beginning, God, the word became flesh. And then John writes in verse 16, For from his fullness, the fullness of him being God, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Do you know what that means? The Greek is this, grace 
on top of grace, 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 and it never stops. It's sort of like the ocean. Let me just give you a, a mental picture here. You go and you look at the ocean, and one wave comes in, and then that wave re recedes, and then another one comes. And if you were to leave, leave and come back in an hour, it's still doing it. If you leave and come back in a year, it's still doing it. If you leave and never visit the beach and come back in 20 years, it is still doing it. In other words, it's inexhaustible. And some of you in this moment, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you don't know my problems. You're, you're right. I, I don't know every problem in this room, but I know Jesus. I know him. And you might be thinking, well, still, you don't know what I've been through. And again, you're, you're right. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I do know. I know what Jesus went through for you. I know what Jesus went through for you. And what he's been through enables us to trust him in every moment of our lives. So that no matter how bad we feel, no matter how helpless we feel, please hear this this morning. His grace can handle you. His grace is enough for you. I love the text in Romans 5 where Paul says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Where basically Paul is saying this, where, where sin in my life or in your life goes as high as it can possibly go and it overwhelms us. And we look at our sin and maybe we can't even see the top of it. And it overwhelms us and we think it's about to fall on us and crush us. And yet God's grace covers and goes over our sin. Our sin looms large and God's grace is greater still. That is the beauty of who he is. There's no one else that can do that for us. So therefore, when we say that the word is the revealing one, what we say is this. Jesus reveals to us our need for him. Jesus reveals to us how much we need him. Think about this. Because you and I have sinned. Jesus had to come for us. He took on flesh. He came to us. He took on flesh. He came for us. As we say often around here, Jesus came and he lived a life that none of us could live. He lived a life of total perfection. He never sinned. The Bible says he was tempted in every way yet without sin. And some of us are thinking, well, I know what Jesus is going through. No, you don't. Because every single one of our lives, there's a breaking point by which we start trusting in ourselves and we sin. When the temptation comes, we cut it off, and yet Jesus had no, no point. Jesus had no point in which Jesus gave in. So therefore, Jesus endured sin all the way through. And then Jesus died a death that none of us could die. He died a death for the sins of the world. He died as the perfect sacrifice for your sins and my sins. And then three days later, he conquered the grave. So that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Or let me put it in John's words. In John 1, verse 12, John says this. But to all, not to all everyone, but to all who do, who do something, to all who did receive him. Well, to receive him as what? Well, to receive him for who he is. You have to receive Jesus for who he is. You have to receive Jesus for who he claims to be. And then he says, who believed in his name. So believe, you lean all of yourself upon his name. Well, what does his name represent? His name represents all that he is. So you believe in his name. And then it says, for those who do that have been given the right to become children of 
God. Listen, Jesus isn't an afterthought. He is before all things. He's before all thoughts. He is necessary. And I want to, let me end our time together by putting four important questions on the screen concerning the word. So four important questions, and here they are. Number one, who does the Bible declare Jesus to be? Just think about those questions in your mind. Answer them in your mind. Who does the Bible declare Jesus to be? Well, we just read it. The Bible declares him to be God. The Bible declares him to be the only Savior of sinners in the world. The Bible declares him to be the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And the Bible declares him to be so much more. Do we know who the Bible declares him to be? Are we trusting him as that? And then secondly, who do you truly believe Jesus to be? What I'm not asking is who would you stand up and say Jesus is right now? What I'm saying is who does your life declare Jesus to be. When you walk out of here and you have a decision to make, who does that decision declare Jesus to be? When you have a temptation, who does that temptation, how you respond to that, who does that declare Jesus to be? How does our life reflect that? I'm getting ahead of myself, but think about that. Then third, why do you believe what you believe about Jesus? So why do you believe what you believe? There comes a time, let me just be honest, there comes a time where just saying, well, I believe because my grandparents believe. Or I believe because my parents believe. There comes a time where that doesn't work. And what I mean by that is this. You can't piggyback off your parents' faith, your grandparents' faith. You, you have to own your faith. Your faith has to become yours. Has there been a time in your life where you have owned your faith and not piggybacked off somebody else's faith? And then number four. What difference does your belief in Jesus make in your day-to-day life? What difference does it make? Does your belief in Jesus make a difference at all? Or do you, claiming to be a Christ follower, live like every single person in this world that doesn't care that Jesus came? And would say, I could care less about him. Do we live like them? How how does our day-to-day life show our belief in Jesus? What we, do what we say we believe about Jesus make any difference in our lives? And let me just say this. How we answer those four questions not only determine the quality of life here on this earth. They determine really how we truly answer those. They determine our eternity. They determine our eternity with God. That's some pretty important questions, wouldn't you say? It all comes down to how we have responded to the word who became flesh for us. What is your response to this word? Have you ever come to him as God? Do you ever come to him receiving him for all he claims to be? Have you ever believed in his name, truly leaning all that you are upon all that he is? You understood your sin before a holy God. Do you ask him to forgive you based on what he has done on the cross for your sin and my sin? Do you ask him for the eternal life that only he can give to you? If you have not, the Bible says there is a day that you can ask for salvation. And here's the good news. It's not tomorrow and it's not next month. It's today. It is today. So may today be the day of salvation. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And we're going to call the band forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we come before you in Jesus. We thank you that you are the word. You are the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. You are eternal God, yet You humbled yourself and you came to earth because of our need, not because of yours. 
you came and you did on the cross, Lord, not because of your sin, but because of ours. And we thank you that we can look to you and we can see who God is and how God responds. Lord, just minister to us in this moment by your word, through your spirit. Just pray for anyone that doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation. Oh, word of God, speak into our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>